You know, people are constantly thinking about how they connect or how they learn language or how they make money or how, you know, what neighborhood to live in or all of these other things. But what they don't often consider, especially in the early time, is how do you be alone? Like, what does it mean for you to be alone with yourself? How do you do that well? Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, a business strategist and consultant from Atlanta, living and thriving in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign. It's me, Christine. How have y'all been? Welcome to season five of Flourish in the Foreign. How was your summer? Good? I hope so. Or how was your winter for all of our listeners down under? Nice? I hope so. I've been well focusing on all aspects of my wellness this summer. So, so important. As we go into autumn and winter here in the Northern Hemisphere, it's definitely been a priority for me. Having a lot of fun with friends and just living life and just, you know, getting up to no good. Just kidding. It's all good. It's all lovely. I hope everyone is taking good care of yourselves. Past skincare and Pilates, though, you know, your girl loves both of those things very much. But I hope you're taking care of the person that you are now as you are striving to become. Okay? Let's make sure that you're doing that. If you're not signed up for the newsletter, you're going to want to be. But also, I have some things I want to ask all of y'all. So whenever you listen to this episode, get in touch. I'm thinking about doing some Flourish in the Foreign merch. What do we think about that? And for those of you who have been asking me about a Flourish in the Foreign meetup, I'm still thinking about that. I have not forgotten I'm still thinking about that. So if you guys are interested in that, get in touch. Let me know where I should have it, what we should do, who should be there, and all those things. That would be helpful because when I think about meetup, I don't know. I just think about getting together for coffee. I don't know. So if that sounds interesting to you, let me know because that keeps it top of mind for me. And with some direction, I can actually make it happen. Please remember that the Flourish in the Foreign Patreon will be coming to an end at the end of 2023. So please be sure to become a monthly supporter at Buy Me a Coffee. That's buymeacoffee.com slash Flourish Foreign, where you'll find benefits like the Flourish in the Foreign book club, author chats, monthly chats with me, invitations to recording sessions, and much more. A friendly reminder to everyone, I will be doing another Ask Me Anything episode at the end of this season, so be sure to please submit your questions via the link in the description of this episode. Also, stay tuned to the very end of this episode for a gift from me to you. 
All right, on to the episode. Season 5, Episode 1. Today's episode is so near and dear to my heart. It features the Dr. Erin Connor. Erin and I met each other at a brunch that we both attended in Madrid when we had both first moved to Spain in 2017. We kept in touch over the years, and when I decided to make the leap from Barcelona to Valencia, Erin was there to greet me with open arms. Erin is the type of person that truly makes you want to be a better person. Like seriously, you want to be like a better person after you hang out with her. Every time I'm in her presence, it's an absolute delight. And she knows how to host like a brunch, lunch, dinner party. She's the hostess with the mostess. But let's get into her, you know, official bio. Dr. Erin Connor enjoys a professional background that includes consulting, business development, and social activism. Her educational background includes the completion of undergraduate and graduate work in both the biological and social sciences, culminating in a PhD and postdoctoral fellowship from the University of California, Berkeley. Her career ultimately led her to work in both the education and technology sectors. She developed programs and served as an instructor in higher education at the University of California, Berkeley, and San Francisco State University. She also has several years of experience working in business, co-founding a tech startup, and providing consulting support to both local and national organizations with communications infrastructure, research and evaluation, fundraising, and youth engagement strategies. She is currently vice president and co-founder of Inclusion Design Group, a global business consultancy that specializes in DEI education and training. She is, to put it succinctly, she is that girl. She is that girl. She is. And I know you all will enjoy this episode, particularly if you ever silently made a promise to yourself that you were going to accomplish something. You are going to enjoy Erin's story of keeping a long-held promise to herself, but I'll let her tell you all about it. My name is Erin Connor. I'm located in Valencia, Spain. I am 44 years old and I have lived here in Valencia for five years. I was raised in Riverside, California, and I went on a couple family vacations. Like We did a, a Mexican carnival cruise something once, and then my family took a trip to Jamaica, which was the biggest kind of family overseas trip that we did when I was maybe 12 years old. But really the the formative trip for me in my youth was coming to Valencia, honestly. We, well, technically Valencia community, but this the province of Valencia. I spent a month in Segundo, which is a small town about 30 minutes from here. And my parents found this program for students through the high school where I was attending. And I went with two other young women from our school who I didn't know at the time and found myself in Segundo, which is just this little small town, this little school up on a hill. And 
that experience was a formative experience for me. That is literally the reason why I'm here today. It was 1994. (laughs) I was 16. And I had the opportunity to just spend the morning on the beach. It was a Sunday and none of my friends were really into it. So I just grabbed my towel, took the bus, laid out on the beach. There were Walkmans. That's how long ago this was. So I had my Walkman and I'm listening to my tape of Sade's Kiss of Life, looking out on the Mediterranean Sea and in so much bliss. And I said to myself that that Sunday morning, I said, you know, Aaron Connor, you know, in the dramatic adolescent fashion, when you're older, I promise you, I will move you to Spain. You will come back and live here one day. And, you know, you say these things in, in these dramatic fashions, right? And then for many, including myself, it just kind of moves to the back a little bit. And it, thankfully, it never went fully away. But it was something that I knew I wanted to do. I just didn't know how. I didn't know when. No one in my family or extended family had ever lived overseas. It was just not an experience I had any familiarity with. And so I just thought, you know, if one day life gives me the opportunity, I'll pick it up. But until then, I've got to keep living. I asked Erin where she attended university and if she had the interest or the opportunity to study abroad while in school. I went to two different universities. I spent the first two years in a very small, historically Black college in Huntsville, Alabama. And and then my junior year, I transferred and I went to UC Berkeley. Now, at the HBCU, I could have come back to the same school for a year and did the study abroad program at the same school that I went to when I was 16. They have a, a university program as well. But it didn't really occur to me to do that. I was playing basketball for the school that I went to. I had a whole plan for myself. I was very, very kind of type A about my studies. It's like, okay, I'm going to take this class this semester. The next year, I'm going to take these set of classes. I just had this whole plan that I felt like I needed to complete to the letter. I studied biology. And I wanted at that point when I was a freshman, I wanted to be an orthodontist. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to do pre- this pre-dental program. And then I'm going to go to dental school. I'm going to you know, do my specialty, all of this. But like my course schedule for six years, I had typed up in a folder somewhere. So studying abroad wasn't a part of that. I'm really grateful. My aunt like pulled me to the side one day and she's like, you know, I think that this is a little obsessive. This, <laughs> this feels like you're doing a lot. You need to calm down. <laughs> And she was so right. But my personality at that time just did not permit a year abroad. And then I, when I let it go, when I realized that, you know what, I love science, but I may not love the idea of being an orthodontist, but I love science, that kind of opened things up for me, made me a more flexible person when I thought about what my future might be. And you know, there are a lot of things that went into that. I had what I guess some people would call the quarter life crisis when you have this moment in your early 20s and you say, okay, I've got to make all these major life decisions. I have to decide what I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I have to decide, you know, what my family structure is going to be. I have to make all these big decisions right now. Where am I going to live for the next 50 years? And the realization I came to, which a lot of people come to, I think more and more these days, is that I don't have to decide what I'm going to do forever. I just have to decide what I'm going to do first. And then I have to decide what I'm going to do next, you know, and that really freed me up. You know, my, both of my parents were in their industries for 40 years. My mother was a teacher all her life. 
and retired from the school district. And that's what she did. And so initially I was thinking, well, I got to think about what do I want to do for the rest of my life? And I just didn't know what that thing was. And so for me, the university process was about exploring my love for the sciences and seeing, you know, what that felt like and learning so much wonderful, like mind blowing information about the human body and, and nature and all of that. But then also realizing that how I wanted to pursue that in my life and what that meant for me at what, at different points in my life could shift and change and that would be okay. So initially I decided to work in the lab and I was working with an amazing scientist. His name is Dr. Tyrone Hayes, incredible, incredible man. And he was one of the only, if not the only, when I was there at least, black professors in the biology department at Cal. And so many of us kind of migrated to his lab, which is often the case. I mean, diversity attracts diversity. And I I loved the work that he was doing. He was looking at the impact of pesticides on amphibians. And so I spent a lot of time in the lab and and in the field catching frogs and and doing what I felt was really important and meaningful work. And and so then I I was in my senior year of college. And I took this class on educational inequity and began to realize like on a macro level, what inequity meant in the world and how it impacted outcomes, not just economic outcomes, but health outcomes, all kinds of different outcomes for people from my community. And I really wanted to do something about it. And I felt like, again, in this very black and white world, this where there's no gray, where there's no flexibility, you think I have to do this thing or I have to do this other thing. And so I thought, all right, well, I love science, but I have to make sure that, you know, this this inequity stops happening. And so I need to, you know, go to law school and sue everyone that's responsible for this. And so, you know, I'm going to drop science for now and do education and like all of this movement, which also contributed to this quarter life crisis thing I was telling you about earlier, right? Where you think you have to make these, these really definite choices about things. And ultimately, I am, because I still love science, I was pursuing this career in the biological sciences on one hand and like taking grad level courses. And then at the same time, kind of tiptoeing over to the education department where I had enrolled in the master's program and eventually in the PhD program and thinking I had to make this choice. And what ended up, what ended up happening is I, I got my PhD in education in social and cultural studies, but then I came back to the biology department and did a postdoc in diversifying the STEM fields because there's a beautiful harmony between wanting to find equity for people from marginalized communities and also looking at how that inequity plays out specifically in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and how that the the limitation of opportunity for marginalized communities limits us in so many other ways, right? So I think, you know, long story short, I say all of that to say there was this period in my life where I had a very inflexible way of thinking about what my career would be, where I would live, what my family structure needed to look like. In this very traditional sense, I was raised in a very, very traditional family. And I began to break out of that. And this, from the moment that I began to see that things didn't necessarily have to go the way that they had gone in, in my parents' lives or in other people who were excellent role models for me, but who had different passions than I did, that didn't have to fit this same model, then it freed up the, the reality that I could do a lot of other things that were outside of the mold, that I could live in a way that was very specifically for me, that really met the needs that I had. And 
And what I realized then was that it wasn't going to be about me pursuing one career forever. It was going to be about me pursuing a lifestyle in which I felt like I was making meaningful contributions and also able to have some independence with my time and with my location and space. And so in pursuing that lifestyle, it's led me to a lot of different career choices. And in each one of those different places, I felt like there was meaning, like I was contributing something, that I was making a positive impact in the world, and that I had a level of independence over time and space location that made me feel like this was something that was going to fit with the, the way I wanted to live and what it meant for me to personally thrive. So I think that university experience, even though I didn't end up studying abroad, really in a kind of indirect way, led me back to this idea of doing what I'm doing right now. So Erin came to Valencia when she was quite young. She made the promise to herself. And like so many of us, experienced life. Life was lifing. And perhaps seemingly carrying her away from this long-held promise. So I asked her, how did she manage to make it back to Valencia? What was her journey to moving abroad? So in my 20s, I met the man who would become my husband. And we got married and bought a house. And we were living in Oakland. And I was working as an independent contractor doing business consulting mostly, and some educational consulting. And because I was working as an independent contractor, I began to feel like, okay, I have the perhaps a level of freedom now. I can maybe maintain some of my clients if I'm living abroad. I'm at this point in my mid-30s, right? And my husband at the time, he felt like, you know, I want to be supportive. He wanted to definitely not squash my dreams. You know, he he was open to the idea of it. But then also he was a very driven person and an entrepreneur himself. And he felt like, you know, he was nervous to be away for so long. And and as he thought about what that might do for his business opportunities, he thought maybe this is something that we could do, but maybe in a short-term way. Right. And so because I was, you know, kind of continually coming back to this conversation every now and then, hey, well, you know, what would you think about us maybe moving next year for a little while? He would say, okay, well, maybe we could do a year abroad. Or maybe nine months we can do in in Spain and see. And so finally, he got to the place where he was willing to to commit to doing what we called the reconnaissance mission. So in October of 2016, we came to Segundo because that was the place that I had been. I didn't really even know much about Valencia, the city. I was, you know, more oriented around this dream that I had as a 16 year old of this small town. Named, named Segundo. So we stayed there for a week. And while we were there, we came to Valencia and we thought, oh, the city is pretty cool. We looked at cost of living. We looked at, you know, what we might do while we were here. And we basically agreed that, you know, it's time we can apply for a visa now. Let's let's see what this all means. So we did this reconnaissance, reconnaissance mission in October. And in December, our marriage just absolutely fell apart. And in that moment, I thought, okay, what does this mean for this dream that I have to live overseas? And it never once occurred to me not to move to Spain. Never once. I never thought, oh, well, let me just see what, it, you know, it just, it opened it up. If anything else, it became more of an of a necessity for me 
to to get overseas and to see what this life would be for me. And it opened up the window a little bit wider to say, well, maybe we'll, maybe it can be more than nine months because it's just me making the decision around this. And I don't ne- need to negotiate with anyone else around how long I stay, whether I like it, whether I don't like it. So I proceeded with applying for the non-lucrative visa here in Spain and and I moved. 2017. And in August of 2017, I made the move. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. It certainly did not look anything like I initially thought it would look when I was planning to move here with my husband and even possibly with my nephew. We talked about moving with my niece and my nephew. So I was looking at schools. You know, it was a completely different experience than what I had initially considered. But but it was obviously the one that was that was meant for me. I love departure stories. I do. I keep on saying I'm going to make a compilation episode, and I will sometime in the future. But I really enjoy departure stories because some of these stories are years in the making, as people tell it. Some of it is only the day of. But what I really enjoy about departure stories is that we really get to understand what was going on in a person's life as they packed up one life and set off on this next chapter. It's always so fascinating to me. So I asked Erin to walk us through those final weeks as she prepared to leave Oakland and move to Valencia. Well, let's see. Day of departure. So I... As you can tell but from what I've shared already, I was living a whole family life in Oakland. So I had to go from a four-bedroom house where, that I shared with my husband and his nephew and niece and compress that into two suitcases and a backpack and my purse. Because I just refused to have a storage. I refused to ship things over to Valencia. It just didn't make any sense to me. I just thought I'm going to have to downsize in a very real way. So it meant giving away everything. So the day of departure, I had a couple suitcases and my backpack. I was at my best friend's house. She's going to drive me to the airport. I had spent literally every single day of, of that year up until the day that I left at her house. And I would come there in the morning. I would work from there. She might, you know, work from there. She, at the time, she was teaching at a local community college. And I'd take my dog with me to her house and we would just stay there. We'd cook dinner and then I'd go home and then I'd come back the next day. It was every single day that year. And I know that that part of that was how I managed the breakup and kind of how I was processing this move and this, this shift and change. But we had really become very close that year. And so leaving her, I think, was the most significant part of this move abroad on that day. That day, it was, you know, just bawling tears in the driveway. <laughs> like It was just, man, the color purple scene, me and you will never part. It was just all of that. And in fact, the plan at the time was for her to move, for her to get her visa and for her to join me there the following summer which didn't end up happening, which is a whole nother, probably how to get your visa and move to Spain episode. <laughs> and how not to, 
<laughs> but it was, you know, it was for the best. And and so that day of departure was very emotional for that reason, you know, leaving her. But then also so exciting. I just was overwhelmed with excitement to finally make this move to Spain. And so I had all my things and I flew into Valencia, stopped in Morocco, sat in that airport for many, many, many hours, <laughs> and then got to Spain. And honestly, you know, there wasn't a lot of drama around the arrival. I got a cab, went to an Airbnb. I rented an Airbnb for a month so that I would have time to find the apartment that I wanted to live in and made my way. I remember in that first week, just walking through the neighborhood and tearing up, being just so happy to have done this thing specifically for myself that I always wanted to do and being so proud of myself in that moment. I, you know, I moved, I didn't have a job. I didn't know how this was going to work. You know, I had a contract that was on its way out that was kind of winding up maybe two or three more months of that. And I had a year to figure out if this was going to work and if so, how it was going to work. And I didn't really speak much Spanish. You know, I spoke enough to get by, but getting by is a very relative thing. And and yet again, I was happier than I think I've ever been in my life. I asked Erin what her first year here in Valencia was like. The first year in Valencia, for me, I think the focus more than anything was on community and building community here and almost in an unintentional way. I would certainly recommend that people build community intentionally. But for me, I didn't come here thinking the first thing I need to do when I hit the ground is meet people and create that community. I was just like, I just got to get there. I need to get there. I need to make it. And and everything else will fall into place. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that I think really helped me in my first year was just making a commitment to saying yes to as many things as I possibly could. So when I was invited for coffee, when someone said, do you want to go to the beach? When someone said, hey, there's a class that's happening on Thursday. I just said yes to absolutely everything that I could. And so that really was the impetus for me being able to create community. And one of the things I said yes to, which was one of the best things I did, was to attend this theater class. And, you know, I never have had any interest in being an actress. Theater was never my thing. But someone invited me to go to this theater class in the back of a restaurant every Thursday night. And I said yes. And when I got there, what I discovered was a group of people who, like me, weren't necessarily thinking they're going to be professional actors one day, but they come together to just do these skits and play these roles and to laugh and to have fun and, you know, and and build this community. And these are people who weren't English speaking. So it was great for my language learning. I mean, imagine if you go to a cafe enough times or get into a cab enough times, you'll figure out how to order your basic meal or how to get from X to Y. But it's not very often you have the opportunity to build vocabulary around, you know, what it means to be a captain of a sinking ship and, you know, we're needing to break up the wedding in some dramatic fashion. You're going to learn so much more of Spanish vocabulary being in these situations that you wouldn't ordinarily find yourself in as a newcomer to a city. So that was really great. And then the people there were really open and friendly and even though I wasn't the best at communicating in Spanish, we were actors you know, air quotes. 
So we figured it out, you know, and and many of them have, have become really some of my best friends to this day. So it, it just was a really great opportunity for me to build community organically and good people know good people. So their friends were also good people. So meeting the friends of my new friends expanded my community quite a bit. And then the other thing around year one was I met my Spanish family. So the the apartment that I ended up moving into on the first floor, there lived a woman who one day just kind of came up to my door. I'm the new person in the neighborhood. And, you know, Valencia has a decent Black population now. But in 2017, we were very far and few between. And not only am I Black, I'm American, which is also not as common here. And I'm nearly six feet tall. So I show up in this neighborhood and people are looking at me like, who is this person? And in the building, I think there just was a lot of curiosity. I got a lot of curious looks. And so anyhow, she came to my apartment one day and knocked on the door and she said, hey, you know, I, I was talking with one of the other neighbors and she said that you have a dog. When what I was trying to say with my poor Spanish was that I had a dog in California who couldn't come. And so she said, well, you know, I have a dog. And if you want, we can take the dog for a walk on Saturday and I can show you around the city a little bit. Just super open and nice. And of course, saying yes to everything. The year one is the year to say yes to everything. And it really allowed me to, to just spend time talking, learning Spanish, learning the city, and creating a new bond with someone who honestly didn't have anything in it to gain was just being open and kind. And after, you know, going on walks with her a couple times a week for a couple of months, she turns to me and she says, you know what, I'm going to adopt to you as my American daughter. Or at least that's what I think she said, because those were the early days of Spanish. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure, that that works. But you know, sometimes people say things that are really nice and you're just like, oh, that's a really sweet thing to say. But you don't expect them to really go come through in the way that they've just described. But when you say, I'm going to adopt you as my American daughter, I'm just thinking she's committing to being nice to me forever. But she really meant that. And it has made all the difference in my experience here in Spain to have a family here. It's wonderful to have friends. But anyone can tell you having family is something different. You always have somewhere to be on the holidays. You always have someone who's going to look out for you, who's going to make sure you're okay if you get sick, who's going to check on you. And, you know, just the the way that she's extended, not just herself, but her whole family, right? So she has another daughter who's now like my Spanish sister, and she's got brothers who are my uncles, and her great aunt is my great aunt. And just having this family open up to me has been such a beautiful part of my experience here and was such a beautiful foundational thing for me in my first year. And I'm just really grateful for that emphasis on community, family, friends, building those connections. And ultimately, that's how the language came around, because otherwise, it would have been really difficult. I didn't take classes, especially after year one. I was traveling a lot for work and, and you know, didn't want to have a class that I needed to be physically present for because it would be difficult to be consistent there. And I just figured, you know what, if I don't meet people, if I'm intentional about not creating friendships with people who speak English, or at least with people who won't speak to me in Spanish, then, then I have a greater chance at learning this. 
And that's how it happened. Just really kind of having conversations with the community that I built in year one and not being so nervous about the language acquisition, letting it come more organically because of the people who made up my community. What I love so much about this podcast is that I typically interview women who have lived abroad for many, many years and perhaps in many, many places. And I think that's really important to showcasing their stories of their life abroad because the feelings and experiences from year one to year three are very different. (laughs) They're very different from years four, five, six, seven, eight, which are very different from years 9, 10, 11, 12. And I've had the pleasure of interviewing women who have been abroad for a lot of time and who have sustained themselves and have really found their magic ingredients to longevity abroad, living a life well lived abroad. And so I asked Erin, what were some of the difference between year one and now? I think I'm Definitely different than I was when I first came here. And in in some ways that I know I have, I can connect back to this move. But then in other ways, I think it's just about getting older and hopefully a touch bit <laughs> a touch wiser as time goes forward. But I think making this move proved something to me. And that changed me in a pretty foundational way. You know, I've always been on the optimistic side of realist about things, but doing this and landing on my feet, it really underscored a few things for me. And one is that having a strong family or people who love you unconditionally, having my parents, as an example, who, while they didn't fully understand (laughs) what I was doing, I knew that, you know, that there wasn't a way for me to disappoint them because I've made this move. Like that that didn't exist in my reality. In my reality, I was going to make this effort. And if I loved it, I was going to stay. And if I didn't, I was going to come back. And it just, I didn't have to have the added weight of considering what other people thought about things. And I can, at this point in my life, you know, I can say that regardless of what people think. And I think at that point, because it was so new to me, it mattered that I had people who were supportive, that there were people who I knew I, you know, were going to have my back regardless. But now what I realize is that even if they didn't, this was still the thing to do. And that when you are going to make decisions for yourself and for your life, it's not, it's not as important to say, well, you know, I'm going to do this in spite of, or I'm going to do this because of, or I'm going to, you know, like all of this, this maneuvering that we do to say, you know, how, how is this decision? How does this land relative to other people? Just taking that away for a minute, not to say it doesn't matter at all, because what you do may have consequences in someone else's life that you need to consider, but really being able to separate who you are, what you choose to do, what your identity is grounded in from how people might react to it, what fears they may have about it, what concerns they may have for your life, even what kinds of what kinds of things you think motivate them to feel really like excited or or to admire you in certain ways. Even that's like sometimes we get caught up in that thing. I just want them to be proud of me. Getting away even from that and just really focusing in on 
what do I need to do for myself and for my growth? And then thinking about, well, how does this fit into this constellation of, of the world that I live in? But having that cushion to start was great, but I recognize not everybody has that. And now I know five years in that even if I didn't have that, it wouldn't have made it any less the thing to do. It's absolutely the thing to do if it's right for you. And then you figure out how to do the things that you need to do without creating harm. But ultimately, it's about finding your identity for yourself. And I think that's something else that Spain has really offered me is the ability to be fully myself outside of the context of anyone that I've ever known. When I moved to Spain, I did not know a single human in the entire country, not one. And I grew up in a community that was very strong and insular, super supportive, very, very loving, but also very insular. And and so you were always somebody's grandchild, somebody's daughter, somebody's cousin, such and such as niece. And you're always kind of seen in the context of your family and of the community. And and if not that, then you're always seen as, oh, well, she's the one who went to school here. She's the one who did this. Like, you know, all of these things that you're that are being attached to your identity, not even that you're personally attaching, but that are being fixed to your identity. And sometimes that's that's great for you, and sometimes it's not. And so being in a country where none of that exists means you have to identify for yourself the things that you want to attach to who you are, how you want people to see you, how you want to represent yourself, what things you're going to tell people about your background and what things you're not going to tell people about your background. What's important for you to share with people who are becoming part of your community and what actually doesn't even matter to you anymore. What no longer is is something that you connect to who you are. And so being here in Spain for this time period has really given me that, that opportunity to see who I am for me and to not be defined by anyone else or any other relationship with anyone else or any other context, any other schooling, any other career choices, just me, just me, black girl on the street, walking down, you know, going to the Mercadona, like going to the market, sitting on the beach and being totally out of my context and totally empowered to choose who I'm going to be now. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you have, please support this labor of love because it is labor nonetheless. You can support this solo indie podcast by becoming a member of the Flourish in the Foreign Buy Me a Coffee membership, where you can subscribe to support the podcast on a monthly basis. You can also give one-time support via Buy Me a Coffee as well. And you can do either one at buymeacoffee.com slash flourishforeign. Support this podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you listen to the podcast. And if you listen on Spotify, you can also leave comments on each episode and even answer some of the poll questions I've created for certain episodes. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family and even the colleagues you kind of like. This podcast continues to exist and thrive due to listeners like you. Thank you so much for your continued support. Now, back to the episode. Being Black in Spain 
it's always an interesting topic. There's always some sort of article going around the internet about being Black in Spain, usually from tourist points of views. And I know that everyone who listens to this podcast understands that Blackness is not monolithic, nor is a Black experience monolithic, let alone in Spain. And so I asked Erin about being Black in Spain, and in particular, if she has found and cultivated a Black community while living in Spain. So one of the the resources that I discovered prior to moving to Spain was a group online called Las Morenas de España. And really beautiful group of women of color that lived abroad or that wanted, had the, the aspiration to live abroad in Spain. So finding this group online gave me so much hope that I'd be able to come to this country and maybe also have the experience of connecting with other people of African descent in this area. And so it was one of the first things that I did when I arrived here. There was a brunch in Madrid in October, and then they had a a Thanksgiving, like a Friendsgiving event in November that year. And then they, they did a big retreat in December, and we spent five days in Javier. There were maybe 15 of us or so. And it was just beautiful to be able to connect with so many wonderfully talented, brilliant women from all over the world. It wasn't just Americans that were there. And it really was an experience that I think helped ground me in this newness. You know, there's so many things that are new when you move to a new country, especially when you don't speak the language. It's the culture. It's what are people wearing? It's the climate. Oh my goodness, it's so humid here. And I'm from California. And it's just totally different heat experience. And so just all of these different changes and to be able to look into the face of someone who looks like me really created a very grounding moment for me in that first year, which I deeply appreciate. So shout out to Las Morenas de España. And I just appreciated that I was able to create friendships just in that first few months that I have to this day. And it's been a really beautiful experience to be able to connect with them. What it's like being Black in Valencia, as I mentioned before, I think, you know, in the in those initial years, there were so few Black people. I could go for a day and maybe see two or three on the sidewalk if I'm walking around all day long. And today in 2023, I think that number has grown. I probably pass 20 Black people on the street every day. And that's a great thing. But, you know, when I came here, I wasn't as concerned with, you know, how am I going to find a Black community initially? My thought was, how am I going to find myself? <laughs> you know, I was coming from such uh, such a transitional, pivotal time in my life that I knew that I wanted to have the possibility to connect with Black people. Black people are hugely important. The Black culture is hugely important to me. But I really was invested in that first year and thinking about where am I? Who am I? What is this world going to look like for me? And how do I, you know, kind of come back to that grounding? But I wasn't as as worried about the day-to-day. What I found in my day-to-day was a lot of curiosity. And sometimes that curiosity bordered on on the edge of offensive, but mostly it was just curiosity. You know, wherever you have people who are significantly different than what you've ever seen before, there might be that. And there are people who know how to handle that and like 
fix their face and not make a big scene. And, you know, and then there's some who don't and they just walk past you with mouths agape and stop in the middle of the street. Like what, who, how, (laughs) what is this person in front of me? And, you know, I I got a little bit of all of that, but for the most part, I think it was just a, a, a deep curiosity for who I was and even more so because of my Americanness. If I had to say anything about racism in Valencia, as I've experienced it, it's it's most different from what you see in the U.S. as a result of class. You know, I believe that my my experience has been significantly different than someone perhaps from Senegal or from Cameroon or from you know any of the other, even the Dominican Republic. People who come here and they're of African descent, but they're from a country that is stereotypically seen as less developed or is more impoverished, they're treated in a much different way. And where in the US, I think class has something to do with it, but you could be a multimillionaire and walk into a boardroom and people will say, well, you know, what did you make your money making, you know, selling drugs? Like it's just class doesn't overcome racism as much in the United States. But here in Spain, in my experience, which is, you know, limited to five years and to the people I've encountered every day, what I found is that classism plays a pretty significant role in how they're going to interpret your race. Racism is absolutely a thing, but how they interpret your race is going to be deeply influenced by that. So when they learn that I'm American, many people hear the experience of Americans typically is that they are privileged to be able to travel here because traveling from the United States is something that requires time and time is a privilege. It requires money and money is a privilege. Their experience with Americans tends to be that, you know, Americans have a level of privilege and so they will treat you in a way that is very different than they might treat someone who's coming here to look for a life more with more economic opportunity. And at the end of the day, I think all of us are here looking for some kind of opportunity, but you know, people, the way that they see you is unfortunately very tainted by, by the stereotypes that are attached to other people from African descent from the continent or from prior Spanish colonies. And so I've certainly encountered it, but it's always been kind of that mixed bag where people say, oh, well, because you're American, then, you know, you're the, you're the cool kind of black person. And they want to know if I've ever, you know, met Will Smith or if I know Beyonce, it's just, it's, uh, it's, you know, racism is everywhere. Colorism is everywhere. That is absolutely a fact. And I think it's different. Racism doesn't show up in the same way here. You know, I think that we're at a really great place where if you're interested in moving abroad, there's a lot of great resources, right? There's podcasts, there's blogs, there's Facebook groups, there's concierge services, there's so much. But what I think is lacking in the conversation, which I hope this podcast brings, is about the sustainability and the longevity of living abroad, especially as a Black woman. And so I asked Erin, what characteristic within her has made it possible for her to live and thrive abroad? Hmm. That's a wonderful question. I think the characteristic that I have that has allowed me to live here, the time that I have lived here and enjoy my time here, 
ultimately, I think is being adaptable. You know, I think if you come into a situation and you are very rigid about something, or if you're incredibly insistent that things must be this way and they must be this way now, or if you just aren't willing to go with the flow, I, one of the things that I often say is be water and you've just got to flow and you're going to hit some rocks and just the water moves around the rock. And when the water keeps hitting the same rock, that rock becomes sand or the water decides to go to the east or to the west. You know, it just, you can't let the obstacle be the thing that stops you. You've got to see past the obstacle. You've got to be willing to go around it or to just wear it down because you're that perseverant. But at the end of the day, it's about adapting and about being in the flow and letting things just kind of come how they are, but also, again, being willing to be perseverant and break that that rock down to sand if that's what needs to happen in that moment, but being able to tell the difference. And then in terms of what I've had to cultivate here, I think it's really about not being embarrassed. So the, the word in Spanish is vergüenza, and vergüenza is the enemy of a lot of things, learning, progress, happiness. If you are embarrassed to try out the language, to have a conversation with people, to say the wrong thing, to get the word wrong, to mix up the verb tenses, if you're embarrassed to meet people that you don't know or to like to to sit down and, and strike up a conversation with someone or just respond in a conversation with someone, if you feel embarrassed about even just who you are, in a place where maybe there aren't a lot of people who look like you, you kind of stand out. You know, it's I've had a lot of practice at this being a six foot tall woman, but being someone that stands out is something that you are probably going to be if you live in a country like Spain. And feeling any kind of shame about that is going to make your experience really difficult. And so, one of the first things that I had to do in moving here was really cultivate this attitude that I'm not going to be ashamed about anything. And I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I found out that this phrase, you could say this person, to say like this person is good in Spanish, there's a very small nuanced verb switch. And you could say, well, that person is good. Or you could be saying that person is hot. Like basically, you know, saying that person is super hot, super attractive. And the nuance is really small. And I didn't know that nuance for the first three years that I lived here. So I was going around saying, oh, yeah, that's thinking. I was saying that, that's a great person. That person is amazing. Oh, yeah. You know, your sister is so great. You know, or he was amazing. He's great. I think that this is what I'm saying. I think I'm complimenting individuals on who and how they are. When instead, what I'm saying is that person was so hot. <laughs> I did not know it until, I don't know, not too long ago. But what can you do? I mean, that's what I mean. When I say you just have to let it go and cultivating this attitude that, listen, I'm about to, you know, I'm, I'm living this life. And part of living this life means I'm going to make mistakes. And just getting over that before I even make them has made all the difference because I know they're coming. So when they get here, it's like, oh yeah, there it is. I was I was waiting for you. Ha ha. <laughs> Just <laughs> laughing it off and moving on. Soft life, the best life. Y'all know it. So I asked Erin about this concept of black girl soft life, if she's familiar with it. 
Does she subscribe to it? And just generally, if she feels as if she lives a soft life here in Spain. So I am in this group chat with my cousins and my sister put this Instagram post in our group chat just two weeks ago with this man who's drinking this beautiful frozen cocktail. And he's like, yo, I believe in a soft life. And that was the first time I'd heard the phrase. I was like, wow, that that's what it's about. We need a soft life. And was very attracted to the phrase and like reposted it in, in other group chats. So I'm very new to the concept, but it resonates. <laughs> it really resonates. So yes, I'm living a soft life. And I think moving here was part of that commitment. And I think that one of the first things that that signified that I was over the hard life concept in my move here was Trump's election and all of the politics leading up to it and after it in 2017, right? So I, in 2016, was watching all of this taking place in the United States of America and saying, not even just so much that Trump is the worst, like that's not my take-home message. My take-home message is the country that I'm living in is stressing me out. You know, like the the rhetoric, the ways that people are talking about things, what people are willing to do and say to maintain their own, what they think is their own power and self-interest. It was very disheartening and having to see it constantly on the news every day, having to be in conversations constantly about it without really being able to choose as as easily what I'm entering into and not entering into felt hard. You know, it was, it was a lot. And so part one aspect of the soft life, this is clearly, this is not even half of it. So don't let me overrepresent this political piece because there's so much more to a soft life in my opinion, which I'll get into in a moment, but this was certainly part of it. And one of the most important things about the time when I moved, because in 2016, that was the election year. And it was just, it was really hard to have to be a part of that every single day, you know, consuming so much of that energy as a result of being engaged in news of politics, which is important to me too. I mean, I guess I could have just closed my eyes and put my head in the sand, but I believe in the political process. I believe in, you know, being engaged in in ways that are are supportive and meaningful for democracy. But I also, soft lifetime now, believe in choosing when that is for you. I believe in opting in instead of being thrust in, instead of being like born into, instead of opening your eyes and like, there it is on top of you, being able to opt in to those conversations and in opting into the rhetoric and opting into what it means to have to feel that every day as a part of the political atmosphere. So that was part of it. Soft life means I turn on CNN or whatever, you know, the international news channels that they have over here when I feel like it and turn it off when I don't. And I I keep myself informed, but I don't feel as subjected to the day-to-day as I did. I'm able to vote from here. The way that I consume the news is totally different because I have to read about it. I'm not watching the different political news commentaries as much. I'm not just in that same milieu. I'm choosing the sources that I'm reading from and when I'm going to make decisions about the vote, which means I'm just reading the actual bill. I never I didn't used to do that in the United States. It was more like this person saying that, that per, you know, now I'm here. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta vote. I have my sample ballot. What is this about? 
let me do some research and figure it out. And that just feels a thousand times healthier to me and part of this soft life concept. The other piece of soft life for me is choosing a schedule that works for me. I start my day slowly. You know, I, I, my, my company is based in the United States. Our clients are mostly based in the United States. Many of them have global offices. And so we do do some work here in Europe and in Asia, but for the most part, when I have meetings with clients, et cetera, or when we're doing trainings and workshops, it's on West coast or East coast time. None of which begins before 3 PM in here in, while I'm here in Valencia, which means I wake up and begin my day slowly. Soft life for me is having a cup of coffee, sitting on my balcony. It means going to the gym, you know, in the morning, but not at 6 a.m., but going to gym at 10. And then I come back and I take a shower and I, you know, I get to do yoga in the middle of the afternoon. I get to have coffee with friends. I get to cook lunch in my house and sit down and eat it and not just, you know, run and grab a sandwich somewhere and then run to the next thing. I get to start my day slowly. I ease into my life every single day. And then I begin to work typically between three and five in the afternoon, depending on whether I'm working East coast or West. And I work into the night and, you know, I, I try to end my day by around 1130, 12 o'clock the latest and then do it again. So soft life for me is having a schedule that lets me wake up slowly and get into life slowly and do my grocery shopping and go to the farmer's market and just not have to feel the pressure of the rat race that gets you up and out the door and fighting traffic on your way into the office to be there at 8 a.m. And, you know, I just, I don't have to do any of that. And that's soft life. Soft life is also living in a place where the cost of living is lower than where I used to live. I moved here from the San Francisco Bay Area, which is in crisis mode in terms of just the economic struggle and inequity and challenge that it is for people to live well there. It is so expensive that the things you need to do to financially support yourself are, it's a lot. It's just a lot. There's a lot of pressure. And living here, the cost of living is significantly different. I would say it's probably at about 25 to 30% of what it costs to live in the San Francisco Bay Area. And and so it means that with lower overhead, I can make choices that make sense to me. You know, I don't have to say yes to every work thing that comes around. I can make a decision about whether or not this is something that fits with my values. It fits with the the way that I want to do work, with the way that, you know, that I want to be and the what I want to how I want to live and how I want to contribute. And that is also soft life, having the power to be able to say no to specific things because you aren't in it for the financial aspect of things because you aren't under that same level of pressure. And that has been huge. And it also affords you the opportunity to travel more. So I live in Europe. I can fly to Greece or Italy or France for the weekend for 40 bucks. You know, it's just a totally different way to be. And I, I absolutely love it. So soft life is about the power to make choices for your time, the power to make choices about your work. It's about the power to make choices about the kind of rhetoric and political atmosphere that you are engaging in, what kind of what kind of energy you want to have around yourself. It's the power to be able to just be yourself outside of the context of any and everything else. That's soft life for me. 
and I feel like I am absolutely living it. Wellness. I asked Erin what her personal definition of wellness is and how has that definition, that concept, and that practice evolved as she has lived and thrived here in Valencia, Spain. Wellness for me is about creating an environment in which I can thrive. It's about the full environment in which I live and breathe, and not just in a high-level kind of 30,000-foot altitude version of environment. It's the micro-environment that is taking place in every minute of every day. It's what is the environment that I'm in? Is this an environment in which I can thrive this hour? Now, what about this hour? What about this? Now this whole day has taken place. Am, Am I putting myself intentionally in an environment where I feel like I can thrive? And so wellness to me is this, is the environment that I create for myself. And that's physical. That's what kind of a work schedule am I, am I creating for myself? What kind of food am I eating? What kind of air am I breathing? You know, am I going to the mountains on occasion? What are the things that I'm, what are the micro environments that I'm putting myself? What does my physical space feel like? You know, even just something like a candle on my desk shifts what my environment feels like because it shifts what it smells like and it shifts what I'm you know I'm looking at I'm reminded that I did this I bought this candle because I like it and I can do that for myself it's just these small things that collectively create that 30,000 foot view of what my environment ultimately looks and feels like and that environment is what produces wellness but I think that the kind of more specific level is the notion of thriving. So I can create an environment in which I can thrive, but I also have to think about what do I mean by thrive? What is thriving for me? And that's the thing that I think changes. And it's good that it changes. Like what thriving meant for me when I was 22 means something very different to me now. And what I what environment I need to create that, what wellness looks like is different now than it was when I was 20 you know, in my twenties or in my thirties even. And so being able to constantly like evaluate with myself, what is thriving for me? What feels like, like an environment in which that can happen. And then being dedicated to create that. I think the most important thing my mom ever said to me when I was growing up is that happiness is a choice that you alone get to make. Your circumstances don't make that for you. They don't create that for you. People can't create that for you. You choose how you're going to respond to things and you choose whether or not you're going to be happy at any given moment and whether or not you can find contentment in that moment. And sometimes it's harder than others, but it's a choice. And that choice, I think, is about making wellness a reality. Am I going to choose an environment? Sometimes the only power you have is to create an environment like in your mind. You may not have control of your circumstances even at that level. Some people don't. But what does it mean for you to create an environment in which you can thrive just in your own mind in that moment? And and what do you need to do for yourself to get to that space? It's not necessarily fully independent in the sense that you may not, you don't need anyone or nothing. You don't need anything. It's that you have control over the decisions that you're making mentally to choose that. You know, like how do you, what resources do you need to find in order to be able to create mental health for yourself, in order to create wellness for yourself, 
What do you need to pursue? And I'm way oversimplifying this because obviously it's never that easy as to say like, I'm just going to hit the switch and be happy. But I think it's a dedication. It's that same question about, you know, what's the environment that I'm going to intentionally create in a micro way in these five minutes? What can I do to create a space in which I can personally thrive and get out of whatever muck I have in my head around this? How do I get out of that? just here. And then maybe I can think about, well, hey, I'm in Ikea. Let me buy this candle because later I'm going to love seeing it on my desk. So it's these little tiny micro choices, these little things that ultimately create a much larger environment and just feeling a sense of power and a sense of agency to be able to develop that for myself in a way that feels good for me. I give Erin the option of answering a final question or for her to share with you all something that she wishes people would ask her about. I love that last question. That's my favorite. So I, I'll take that one on. I think something that people should ask me that they don't typically ask. Wow. I mean, I, I think one of the things that they don't ask when they're talking about moving abroad is what does it mean for you to like, to be alone in that space? You know, people are constantly thinking about how they connect or how they learn language or how they make money or how, you know, what neighborhood to live in or all of these other things. But what they don't often consider, especially in the early time, is how do you be alone? Like, what does it mean for you to be alone with yourself? How do you do that well? How do you do that right? And it's funny because that's the question I think they should ask, but I also can't tell you the right answer for <laughs> It's the kind of thing that everybody kind of has to learn for themselves. But I think you've got to be brave enough to take it on. And I think people aren't even thinking about it. They look up one day and they find themselves alone. And they're like, what do I, oh, is this a reflection? Like, am I a failure because I'm by myself in this moment? Or like, is, is this, I'm, is this loneliness or is this empowerment or is this, like, what is this thing? How do I describe being alone? How do I, make it fit into a universe where we don't even talk about that much in our society. We don't talk about how to be alone. And I think one of the best things you can do is travel alone. One of the ways you can do that is like go to a concert that there's an artist you really like, go to a concert, do it around an event and go to that concert in this other country or in this, even in this other state, if you're in the U S and just go be by yourself for a minute and enjoy who you are and enjoy not having to negotiate anything with anybody. You eat when you want to eat. You wake up when you want to wake up. You go to the landmarks if you feel like it. You sleep in if you don't. I mean, just being able to appreciate who you are, how funny you are. Like nobody gets your jokes like you, not anyone. (laughs) And just the quirks about you, just really being able to not just love yourself, because I think that is a thing that people are talking more and more about now. Gratefully, loving yourself is something that, you know, we we do at least more than before have conversations about, but it's the alone part of it. And, you know, just being alone, intentionally alone sometimes, choosing like, I'm going to spend this afternoon by myself because I want to. Or maybe even having an intention with the time that you spend by yourself is another strategy. Like, I want to spend this afternoon, I'm going to go for a walk. And while I'm on my walk, I want to think about, 
you know, what some of my interests are, like how I'm going to learn how to, how I'm going to make an opportunity for me to snorkel more. Like I recently discovered that I love snorkeling and I didn't know that before. And so I want to spend some time thinking about, well, what is that going to mean for me in my life? Nobody else needs to care about that, but me, that's something I can do by myself and, and how I can spend alone time, you know, in a way that feels really healthy. So I think it's just that decision about, about being alone and uh, traveling alone and living alone, you know, in some cases. And, you know, so I know that people move abroad with family and all of that. And that's wonderful. But even then you are, there's a sense of, uh, aloneness when you're in a country that's not yours or that you didn't grow up in and getting comfortable with that and feeling good about that and feeling proud about your decision to invest in yourself at that level, I think is a great thing to consider that we just don't often talk about. Thank you so much, Erin, for being a wonderful friend, but also a lovely guest on Flourish in the Foreign. If all of you are interested in keeping up with Erin, you can via social media. So I'm not on a lot of social media networks. I would say on Instagram, I'm at Soyarinda. That's my my Instagram handle, although I use it very infrequently. So I, I don't know that that's really a place you want to go to. It's much more exciting on LinkedIn. If you go on LinkedIn, you can follow my company, Inclusion Design Group. We have an account there where we post different things about diversity and inclusion mostly. I also, my account is there. You're welcome to follow me, Erin Connor, on LinkedIn. My business partner is Dorica Blackman. We also have a number of courses on LinkedIn Learning. So there are ways to connect with us mostly on that platform. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you'd like to learn more about this guest, please check out their show notes page at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes. If you would like to be a guest or know of someone who would be an interesting guest on the podcast, please fill out the guest inquiry form located on the website under the contact tab. That's flourishintheforeign.com slash contact. I will be doing another Ask Me Anything episode at the end of the season, so be sure to please submit your questions via the link in the description of this episode. Stay up to date with everything that is happening with me and the podcast by subscribing to the Flourish in the Foreign newsletter. You can subscribe to the newsletter via the link in the description of this episode or by going to the website flourishintheforeign.com. Be sure to check out the Flourish in the Foreign blog and the Flourish in the Foreign bookshop powered by bookshop.org, where you can support local bookstores and Flourish in the Foreign at the same time. Check out my list of books to help you move, live, and thrive abroad. Make sure that you are subscribed to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel for when I drop new videos and follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at Flourish Forum. You can also follow the podcast on LinkedIn at Flourish in the Foreign. And of course, subscribe to the podcast via whichever platform you listen on and leave a review. As always, Big thanks to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. Here is this week's affirmation. Take whatever resonates and leave what doesn't. It is safe 
for me to pursue the dreams and desires of my heart alone, even if it's in the solace of my own mind and heart. It is perfectly okay and actually amazing for me to align my mind, body, heart, spirit, and life in the direction of my dreams. I honor myself by keeping my promises to myself. I honor myself, I care for myself, and I show myself that I am a priority. And I am worthy of keeping promises to myself. I am worthy of all of the visions and longings and yearnings of my spirit. I'm worthy of bringing them to fruition and bringing them into my lived experience. I give thanks for the clarity and the resilience to be able to go after the things that I long for and that I know are mine, solo or with company, but understanding that as I move in integrity, as I move with the authority of being a co-creator of my own life, as I move with the conviction of my own worthiness for all of the experiences that I desire, that all of the resources, all of the people will be magnetized to me. And so although I may have a season of being alone or even loneliness, I know that everything is temporary. And as I create the space for my dreams to come true in my life, I also create the space for community to uplift me, to love me, to celebrate me in this next iteration of my life. And so it is. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign, if there's another way to live, I probably owe it to myself to find out what that is. Whether it's right for me or not right for me, I have no idea. But just knowing that it's out there, being someone who's curious, I felt like, I need to know. If there's another way to live, I need to know what that is. And make a decision, an informed decision, about whether or not that is right for me. So that's what I started doing. 